0: Hello again, and welcome. I'm your host, Michael Peregrin. We're pleased to have you with us. Today's conversation focuses on one of the most fundamental of all board responsibilities, the oversight of executive compensation and of all its board-related duties and functions that includes such key corollary duties such as data analysis, talent recruitment and retention, and executive search. Executive compositions are complex. They're highly regulated, require heightened board engagement, and demand specialized expertise. They send important messages about corporate culture, expectations, and goals. They are voraciously covered by the media, especially now by what I call as the new media. Compensation issues are particularly in the forefront today, given the flood of of top-of-the-year surveys, reports, and analyses of executive comp in the healthcare industry. They're also in the news, unfortunately, due to controversy and misunderstanding about comp scope and Amount. So today, we're going to explore the latest developments affecting the Compensation Committee with two recognized industry experts. First is my good friend, Tim Cotter, Managing Director of Sullivan Cotter, the well-known human resources consulting firm. Tim is, in my experience, the most recognized name in healthcare executive compensation consulting. Tim's joining us by phone today. And also on the phone, we have with us my longtime partner, Ralph B. Young, who pretty much is the go-to expert on the law of executive compensation, especially with respect to the nonprofit healthcare industry. I think, Tim and Ralph, we've talked about splitting our conversation today into two companion episodes to make it easier for our listeners to follow. I'll say this, it's always an extraordinarily valuable discussion when we have you two guys together. So as the old Cubs announcer, Pat Piper, used to say, ladies and gentlemen, have your pencils and scorecards ready. Let's kick off the conversation by getting Tim's take on the current state of salary increase budgets, incentive award levels, and emerging comp practices. Tim, what are you seeing?
1: Well, thank you, Michael. Where I'd like to start with is, you know, in this COVID time, you're always wondering about the accuracy of the data. So at the end of January, we conducted a survey of the 200 largest health systems in the United States. And of those, well over half uh, responded. And so here's what they told us is going on. When we look at merit increase budgets for executives, at the median, they're gonna be 3%, but they're at the upper end gonna be four. But more importantly, three quarters of systems have what they call market adjustment budget. So in addition to the merit increase budget, they're going to be giving increase amounts somewhere between five, an additional half of a percent to three uh, percent. And so our estimate is salary increase budgets in 2022 are going to be close between four and five percent for executives. So that's much higher than would have been predicted a year ago and probably showing some of the impact of the inflationary trends that we're seeing. In terms of the payouts for annual and long-term incentives, they've pretty much returned to norm. The anticipation is that they'll be at or slightly above target, both for annual and uh, long-term plans. And less than 2% of health systems are anticipating a no payouts on their incentive plans. The last and uh, you know final uh, item that I think we're seeing is, is that with the pressure on attracting and retaining, we're now up to at least in this sample, 90% of systems having supplemented or considering supplementing their special arrangements uh, for executives, including special retention awards, approximately 60% of the systems have those, more significant sign-on bonuses and relocation packages, 55% have those, and over half offering now to executives remote work opportunities in support of attraction and retention. So I'd say in the, at the base level salaries, incentives, and special uh, retention awards. That's pretty much the playing field
0: we're seeing. Ralph, what does that mean from your perspective for the agenda for the comp committee this year?
2: Well, I think that even though compensation is generally moving three or four percent per year, and and that's been a fairly stable, predictable. Increase level for quite a number of years, with perhaps 2020 COVID impact really diminishing that somewhat. It's really the action at the 75th percentile and 90th percentile of the data that committees seem to be focusing on when looking at the competitiveness of their CEOs compensation. And there, depending on what's happening regionally or depending on the national 75th percentile or 90th percentile for their particular peer groups, we're seeing a lot more variability in those data being used for CEOs. Uh, Tim, are you seeing that as well? Absolutely. I think
1: when, you're, when you consider some of the retirements or em- imminent retirements of The CEOs of some of the major systems in the United States and the churn that that creates in the marketplace, our experience is is that those boards are very interested in either A, protecting the executives they have so that they don't take those other jobs, or B, paying what they feel they need to pay in a fairly restricted market to get the human capital that they desire for that role. That's broader than the CEO.
0: Anecdotally, are, is that what you're seeing? Are we looking at a great wave of retirement in terms of healthcare industry executives, or is that just? We, is it the normal flow?
1: I think it's a little bit larger than the normal flow. Some of it's burnout. Some of it is the you know the the demographic of folks who run uh, our health systems, and some of it is the business is uh, probably a lot harder than it used to be. So I do see
2: more uh, more retirements at the senior executive level. And I'm definitely seeing a greater variability at all senior re- uh, executive levels, but particularly at the CEO level. And the funny thing is, it's it's going in both directions. I'm seeing uh, delayed retirements because of the effect of COVID, because organizations have put together strong retention packages, uh, because there are strategic initiatives that for which the current CEO is absolutely vital. And we're seeing accelerated retirements because perhaps they were delayed from the time COVID hit and now they've decided to retire or because of burnout, because it's the tail end of the of the baby boomer generation. And it's just the age at which um, these retirements are now occurring for this generation of leaders. But The impact of that greater variability is pretty strong on the committee's work, and we'll see that through the topics that we have for this podcast because we'll be talking about succession planning, and we'll be talking about retention strategies and having a predictable transition strategy, especially for the CEO relationship.
0: Well, that's a great segue, Ralph, into the next question I wanted to ask you. And let me, Tim, go back to you on this. Is there any doubt uh, that the committee's overarching priority is retaining and developing top talent? Or are we missing something in that regard?
1: Well, in my opinion, I think it is the committee's primary priority in this year. And so obviously some of the uh, actions taken will be uh, compensation related, but I think most importantly, they're really areas uh, outside of uh, compensation. So, you know, incorporating talent risk assessments in the succession planning process uh, with consideration for the critical long term leadership needs and constantly making room for new talent uh, to emerge, assuring the availability of career opportunities and progressive employment experiences for the emerging generation, high value mentoring. And then, you know, I think you get to the issue of culture. So a supportive team-oriented culture that's going to offer the proper work-life balance and support well-being in, in wellness. A quick check that I heard in a comment from a leading recruiter across the country. He knows He knows that he's in trouble when he calls an executive. And the answer is, I have a great boss who listens to me. I'm competitively paid. And my system invests in my personal development and well-being. There's a good summary, I think, for any board as to what the focus has to be going into
2: 2022. Tim, that sounds like a perfect retention strategy, which is to get your senior executive to be able to say that when a search firm calls. But I find it interesting that with respect to the CEO position, that boards and their responsible committees are focusing, I think, more and more on developing successors from within and avoiding, if at all possible, an external search. Uh, I thought that external searches were much more common several years ago. And I think because of the, perhaps the emphasis on succession planning over the last couple of years, as well as the uh, strong competitive pressures I think it's causing boards and their committees to expect internal succession to occur and to look to internal candidates if at all possible. The cost culturally of bringing in a new CEO and the resulting instability that that sometimes causes among the senior leadership team can be a significant cost. And I think organizations and their boards are trying to avoid those costs by, if at all possible, developing their successors from within and then having a stable, longer-term succession and transition strategy that can be developed when you know who that heir apparent is going to be.
0: Well, let me ask you guys a question. Yeah, from a, a board committee perspective, it's often that there's a workplace culture or workforce committee that is responsible for uh, retaining the loyalty of managers lower than, you know, the vice presidential level or over. How deep do you believe the executive compensation committee should go in this era of tremendous horizontal movement? How deep should the committee go in terms of asserting its jurisdiction? over compensation of what I would call non-senior executive officers? Is there a line with the HR committee or the workforce culture committee that they shouldn't cross? How far does the executive comp charter go there? That's an interesting question because there's no single answer.
2: I think it depends on the relationship between the compensation committee and the CEO, frankly. I see organizations where that responsibility goes quite deep at the compensation committee level, and that they review and approve the compensation, the total compensation, including base salary adjustments for the entire executive team. And I see organizations where it occurs only at the CEO level, and the compensation committee might review and approve the market data and hand that over to the CEO, and the CEO makes all the adjustments and reports back to the committee with the adjustments that have been made And I see hybrids of that, where the CEO makes the adjustments, and as long as they are within a certain band of the market, let's say between the 50th and 75th percentiles, then those adjustments go through, and it's just an informational item back to the committee. But where it exceeds that band, then it goes to the committee for prior review and approval before it becomes final. So I've seen all of those models. I don't think any model is particularly required for the committee, and I think it depends on the committee's good judgment as to which to use and which approach will qualify most solidly for the IRS safe harbor on reasonableness of compensation, which is that rebuttable presumption we often talk about. We want to make sure that the committee has done enough approving. Looking at the market data, approving either the range or the data or the compensation itself, and has done so in such a way that the committee, the organization, will qualify for that IRS safe harbor.
0: Hold that thought. I, I you know, let me take a quick side trip here, uh, Tim and Ralph. We've lived with the rebuttable presumption for what? Is it twenty-seven years or so? How important is that right now? Is it best practice? Are people ignoring it? Is the government enforcing it? I think it would be very valuable for our listeners if you both weighed in uh, on this issue, because, you know, with the IRS keeping a very discreet public profile, if there were enforcement activities in this area, we're not hearing about it. So, Ralph, what are you seeing? I think it is as important as it has
2: ever been. I really do. Congress has tried a number of things on executive comp. Intermediate sanctions originally being one of those things. Disclosure on the 990 being another approach. The excise tax on pay over a million dollars for the five highest paid employees of the organization is yet another approach. But what they've never done is said that you can't use this IRS safe harbor, and the IRS still calls it a safe harbor, this rebuttable presumption of reasonableness. So I think it is still today the strongest protection. Uh, that's available on the reasonableness of compensation. And I think organizations really miss tremendous opportunity if they don't take full advantage of it.
0: Tim, just a follow-up question. I I think we all got a little bit worked up a few years ago when that top five excise tax came into play. To what extent have you seen systems adopt particular strategies to address that and the potential uh, concerns about having to pay tax on on that compensation?
1: Well, in my experience from a a general mindset, I think most committees and most systems view it simply as a cost of doing business. And so that has not uh, reduced the amount of compensation levels they've paid. On the other hand, the the vagaries of the regulation plus the, the 990 reporting issues Of compensation, especially deferred uh, compensation, the double reporting, those have all worked to make uh, corporations much more focused on the timing of various uh, compensation payments that are made. And so I think we're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot more annualized type payments going out as opposed to large lump sums. But again, it's uh, most committees want to know the 990 impact when it comes out but it's not stopping them from taking the market activities uh, that they feel are necessary to be competitive. Ralph, you may
2: have other comments on that. I agree with everything you've just said, Tim. I think committees, they want to be informed. They want to know what that cost is, but they view it as a cost of business. It's it's a tax that's being placed on tax-exempt organizations, for better or for worse. Uh, And that's simply the consequence of the decisions that are made. But what I will say about it is the point that you just made about committees being aware of the tax and smoothing out payments that are made to their executives um, and not having these bunched up payments that cause a much larger tax. That has an interesting effect on the retention effect of various arrangements. The more smoothing out you do to lower your excise tax exposure. The, the less you will have of the retention effect of amounts that are accumulating, whether those are supplemental retirement payments or longer-term uh, incentive arrangements or uh, just plain retention arrangements, retention incentive arrangements. As those things bunch, they become very powerful retention tools, but they do cause that, that bigger tax to occur at the end so the smoothing can have an anti-retention effect. I would say that organizations today are focused a lot more on retention uh, than they are on minimizing that tax. Uh, and that's perhaps the right place to be at this point in the competitive pressures that are occurring. I would agree with that, but I also think they're also trying to
1: uh, limit the number of people who pop into that category that has to be reported and they're giving some a thought to it. And I think there's also another view is that unless the retention uh, amount is really significant, a competing employer is just going to pay it, you know, cover it. And so, you know, there can be some weakness to that retention as well. But obviously, uh, uh, retention is a critical component of the thought of the compensation committee.
0: And of course, as Ralph knows, my favorite issue is we've never seen the other shoe drop when if the state attorney general... From charitable Trust Purposes gets involved in saying, what are you guys paying somebody so much that you have to pay a tax? That's a conversation for another day. Ralph, I do want to turn back before we let this issue go in terms of jurisdictional barriers within the, the committee structure of the board. We're talking so much about search and succession. We're talking about retention arrangements. How does executive compensation planning fit within and coexist with the separate search and succession committee of the board? Are they discreet enough? Can we separate retention practices from search and succession, or do they have to all get lumped in together? Well, some boards don't have separate committees for that,
2: and it will all be done at the compensation committee level. But where there are separate committees for those responsibilities, that can be. a a delicate coordination between those committees to uh, review and support the reasonableness of compensation, but at the same time develop an appropriate and workable retention and transition strategy down the road. If that's not all done at one committee, that can be really difficult and I would normally in those instances, counsel for a joint committee to be established that will oversee, you know, with elements of both those committees uh, that will oversee that CEO relationship, consider retention, consider succession planning, have the evaluation process be part of that and then also the compensation. I just don't think that you should keep those processes totally separate if they happen to reside in more than one committee. Tim, what do you see? Very much similar to Ralph.
0: Let me turn to an unrelated question, and that is something that, um, Ralph, you mentioned early on in the conversation today. Just how much are you seeing executive philosophies and philosophy statements changing, given some of the developments that uh, you and Tim have been talking about today? I think that every organization
2: comp committee that I'm working with has revisited their compensation philosophy in the past year. And not only because it's a good practice to review it every year and confirm it or tinker with the language, but I mean really revisiting it and, and seeing if it truly reflects The intended philosophy of the organization. And it may be the peer group. And are we really comparing ourselves to the the organizations that we consider to be our peers in terms of recruitment and retention of key talent to run this organization or the organizations to which we are losing our talent? That is a big focus. Uh, But also in the past, we as a committee might have specified in our executive compensation philosophy that we're gonna set base salaries at the 50th percentile and we're gonna have total cash compensation or total direct compensation at the 75th percentile. And that we'll have total compensation with appropriate benefits also around the 75th percentile. And I think that committees are realizing that being highly prescriptive in their philosophies about where they're going to peg compensation in relation to the market may not be serving them very well and may not be providing the kind of flexibility that they need to retain, to recruit, and to be competitive in their compensation. Uh, So a lot of them have revisited those philosophies to create uh, softer language around where they want to be in relation to the market, what that market is, how it's defined, and the kinds of approaches that they use in their executive compensation. I think it's still good practice to set some expectations as to the ranges that you will fall into as an organization with your executive compensation, but to be highly prescriptive about exactly where the compensation will fall is, I think, coming out of vogue, and uh, I think rightly so.
0: Tim, that's a pretty evolutionary change from my perspective. Do you see your uh, committees uh, following the same approach and moving to a kind of a softer range?
1: Uh, Absolutely. You
0: want a broad range
1: because, uh, you know, again, as you talk about these recruitment uh, and retention issues, you've got a broad cast of characters you're trying to recruit and retain. So why should everyone be moved to the 75th percentile, which some of those policies uh, uh, imply? So I, I think we're seeing more of that and the flexibility is necessary and especially as we've talked about in these very hard to recruit situations, you know the 90th is at the place that uh, you're going to have to uh, be. Uh, following up on Ralph's comments, which I agree with uh, uh, 100%, uh, one of the other things we're seeing is a, is a movement to uh, vary uh, the peer groups by business units. So if you're running a big health plan, you're going to start looking at other health plans as opposed to just looking at uh, your peer, your your peer systems. And the second area really is who are our non-traditional competitors? Where are we pulling people from? And a lot of times that requires ad hoc assessments. But you know, if you're out trying to get a, a chief digital officer, you're not going to be able to look at a health system peer group and be able to get that information or the human capital that's probably going to go with it. So expanding the, the types of labor markets that they're looking at. I think is beginning,
2: uh, and I sense we'll see a lot more of it. Tim, are you finding that the the data traditionally used are having limitations with all these new positions that are occurring in in healthcare? You know, in in my experience, compensation committees are wrestling with some fairly innovative and new executive positions, and there just aren't a lot of really good data on compensation for those positions. And if that's the case, what are compensation committees really doing in that uh, instance? Are they just using good judgment and having good heart-to-heart conversations with their compensation consultants? Well, I think what they do is, is you know, triangulate. So let's take, you know, an
1: area where I always see difficulty are physician executives in charge of uh, network development. Increasingly, those are critical uh, executive roles. There's absolutely no Survey data from it, or if there is, the ends are so small you wouldn't want to pay attention to it. So what do you do? Well, you look at what other senior, you know, physician executive roles are paying below the chief medical officer. You look at internal equity, and then you look at the opportunity cost. If somebody is an orthopedic surgeon, the cost may be higher to you than if somebody is an internist. So you're you're kind of triangulating, and then you know, at the back end, your default is you may have to pay what the market is paying. So if you go back to that chief digital officer I'm talking about, I mean, you can give some thought to those things, but the market may just be the market and you're forced to pay it. And then you have to deal with the resulting perceived internal equity issues that may may create. But again, the types of skill sets we're looking for probably demand the payment uh, rather than trying to maintain internal equity.
2: That's a great point. You know, if you're If you've made the decision as an organization that you really have to have somebody in that position and that they have to have a certain skill set and they have to have a certain level of experience, then once you've made that decision and you can back that up, then it's what they are currently being paid for the industry that they're in and having to match and exceed that to be competitive and to bring in the kind of talent that your system needs.
0: Beyond the use of comp-based strategies how do you both see health systems encouraging executive retention and related personal and professional development? What else is out there besides money?
1: Well, I mean, as I think we've we've discussed already, I mean a, we have to show you know we have to show executives that this is a good place to work, and so that's culture and and teamwork. We have to demonstrate that we can provide them with personal and professional uh, development. We have to show that we have an interest in their wellness and well-being. And then finally, you know, as we move through, we've got to do a better job of giving of, of giving executives, especially the emerging ones, the opportunity so that they can move to where they would like to get to, as opposed to being stuck and then having to move to system X to get the, uh, get the experiences. That, I, I really think it comes down to, again, this detailed succession planning on the part of the compensation committee or human capital committee, taking a real look at where the risks are, taking a real look at where the gaps are, and then going through the process I just d- described. I think that's the only way to do it. Unfortunately, short-term, because those things will take time, short-term money, some, it may be the only answer, but longer-term, Those are going to be the answer. And there are more than a few health systems that are speaking proudly about how their focus on the non-monetary aspects have allowed them to build and create stable, high-performing executive teams.
2: Tim, I could not agree more with the comments you've just made, that, that culture, development, promotional path... And meaning, meaningful work, and uh, for an organization that is making a difference, yeah. those are absolutely critical retention strategy components. I will also say that I've seen instances in which organizations will undergo, engage in some really good executive succession planning, and identify candidates that might be ready now, might be ready in the future, might be ready long-term. But I don't think, I have not seen that those messages about your development, your potential pathway goes from the boardroom back to the executive somehow. and And so that they see the potential pathways that are available for them to grow, develop, and get promoted. And I think moving from the boardroom where those discussions occur to having the right kinds of discussions with the executives themselves about their development and and pathways, I think that's critical for retention.
1: And I think that goes back to uh, Michael's earlier question about how far down in the organization uh, is the committee going? And I think with the expanding portfolio for the compensation committee, It makes good arguments that they should really be looking only at the most critical executive roles and only the most critical executive human capital issues. And sometimes you're sitting in meeting rooms and they're going over a list of 100 people whose compensation they're going to approve. I would sense in most cases their time could be far better spent.
0: Jim and Ralph, this is a good break point for this first episode. It's been a fabulous discussion of the Executive Compensation Committee agenda so far And we look forward to reconnecting with you on episode two, when I think we're going to get more into your thoughts on such critical matters as compensation philosophy, the utility of the rebuttal presumption, and a little more of your thoughts on talent development and succession planning. Be sure to subscribe to the full complimentary podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. There, you'll be able to stay up to date with all of our future issues and to re-listen to the old ones. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Peregrine, saying thanks so much for listening.
2: This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, Distribution or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.